All right, we are back. We sometimes do obituaries in this part of the program. And I just want to do a very brief passing mention of someone named Isaac Patch, whose obituary I read in The Economist, and again, had no idea who he was in life. But the magazine described him as a CIA book smuggler, civil rights campaigner, and naturalist. Yes, apparently back in the 40s and 50s, he got involved with the CIA, and one of the things he did was smuggle books into the Soviet Union. And no, we don't know whether he has any connection to the Dr. Zhivago case. The book notes that he did feel that what he was doing was kind of a martial plan for the mind. Although the obituary noted that the CIA didn't fund this uh, effort very lavishly. It never got more than a million dollars with only a $10,000 startup. Tiny by the standards of Cold War espionage, but the magazine said the impact was huge. The Solzhenitsyn family at least later testified to that effect. The books published by the Bedford Publishing Company ranged from technology to high culture and included works that were banned in the Soviet Union for obvious reasons like George Orwell's Animal Farm. But Isaac Patch didn't just oppose uh, totalitarian uh, efforts to restrict freedom. He was kind of PO'd about what was going on here in the United States. He asked himself, said the magazine, why should the black residents in in Inglewood, his home district in New Jersey, suffer from rigged elections, bad schools, and irregular rubbish collection? He threw himself into the civil rights struggle, touring in the American South with his daughter. Peace also noted that Patch had a great love of the Russian people, who he thought were very generous. This reminds me of my failure to follow up on our pledge some weeks back to attend an actual Russian sauna in San Francisco, which... uh, Sam McManus of the B beat us too, and in the process interviewed my pal Amisha Brodsky. Uh, we we got to track that down, especially in light of the fact that uh, new studies are showing that saunas really do boost your health. Piece in New Scientist by Linda Geddes notes that people with chronic heart failure who took saunas five times a week for three weeks improved their heart function, also the amount of exercise that they could do. The article speculates on why. They benefit the health, and I don't think that's really clear yet, but uh, people have sworn by them for centuries, and I think think they're on to something. Did I ever tell the story, Mr. Millen, about my visit to the Russian sauna in Moscow? I believe you might have touched on it, but I don't know for sure. Well, that's a good story. I'll have to tell it when we bring Misha back on the show. Duh. All right, let's hit two things we deferred from last week's program, promising to return to them, and we like to keep our promises. First from USA Today, a piece by Kevin Foe, a primary care physician, with the title, Doctors Aren't Overpaid. Check the numbers. Subheadline is, Slashing Our Salaries Wouldn't Cut Costs. Dr. Foe starts by noting that um, someone at Vox reported that U.S. physician salaries were twice as much as those in countries like France, concluded that, quote, doctors' salaries are a pretty significant part of the reason why the U.S. spends more per person on health care than any other developed country, unquote. Noted foe, not surprisingly, many doctors disagree. A 2014 Medscape poll found that only half of physicians felt they were being fairly compensated. And he suggests they compare physicians' compensation relative to the others in the top 5% of the income bracket. The talent pool that supplies doctors also likely produces other high earners, business executives and lawyers, for instance. Harvard economist David Cutler did this comparison and found that U.S. physicians were less well-paid than non-U.S. doctors relative to their high-earning peers. Noted also you should consider the significant financial capital it takes to become a doctor in the U.S., not including the cost of an undergraduate degree, the median four-year tuition of a private U.S. medical school is now $290,000. And 
and physicians must complete three to seven years of residency before they can practice independently. And yeah, they do pay residents. I recall earning a cool 22000 a year while I was in residency. A lot of us wind up, wind up doing the math for our you know, 80, 90 hour weeks included. We were making pretty much minimum wage. But at least in those days, we didn't have the kind of crushing debt you do now, at least if you went to a state school, 290000 Um, Kevin Foe also says, let's not forget administrative costs, like the salaries of health insurance and hospital executives. They make up 20 to 30% of all healthcare costs. The average health insurer's CEO base pay was 583,000. For hospital administrator, 237,000. He said, slashing physician salaries won't move the needle much on health costs. Princeton economist Uwe Reinhardt estimates doctors' salaries constitute about 10% of total health care costs. If physician pay were cut in half, we'd save a paltry 5%. He notes, I think correctly, that those who want to bring the earnings of U.S. doctors in line with those of Europe must also offer government-subsidized medical education and nationally regulated medical malpractice systems that many European nations enjoy. Better yet, stop targeting physicians and focus on other factors that have a much bigger impact on health costs, such as wasteful spending and administrative overhead. And that last, we think, is one of the big culprits. Of course, we're leaving out, uh, you know, what Big Pharma is doing. We could do entire shows on that and should. Let's just leave it with the fact that I agree with Dr. Foe. But we should bitch slap the pharmacies just a bit. And who better to do it than a business-oriented conservative publication like The Economist, who noted in their free exchange column the following. It's hard to think of an industry in which competition is more important than pharmaceuticals. As healthcare costs rocket, the price cuts, often 85% or more, that generics offer are one easy way to economize. Ibuprofen is one good example. In the early 80s, the drug was a costly patented product. Today, Boots, a British chemist, sells 16 generic tablets for 40 pence, 68 cents. In America, the drug can be bought in bulk for a penny a pop. Indeed, competition from generics is so painful to drug companies, they've invented a series of ingenious palliatives exploiting patent laws to help maintain high prices. Notes the magazine, patents create short-term monopolies. The idea is simple. The drug maker makes its formula public and exchange is granted a competition-free run in the market lasting up to 20 years. The patent guarantees a decent return, meaning companies have both the means and incentive to keep innovating. When the patent reaches its expiring date, the comfortable monopoly evaporates, replaced by cutthroat competition. So pharmaceutical companies like to nudge people toward newer drugs that are still protected by patents. Omeprazole, a drug to reduce stomach acid developed by AstraZeneca in the 1980s, shows how that works. It's called Prilosec here in America, and it became one of the best-selling drugs in the world by the mid-1990s. But the patent expired in 2001, and AstraZeneca faced a drop in profits. So the company took its drug and adapted it, created a closely related compound, Esomeprazole, which it now sells as Nexium. Although it's clearly an offshoot of the original medication, it's counted as a new drug and was given a patent. Notes the piece, even more troubling than fending off competition with marketing is a third option. Pay the makers of generics not to compete. Since the early 2000s, pay for delay agreements have become more common. A company with a patent due to expire strikes a deal. 
It pays potential entrants a fee not to compete, thus preserving its monopoly. A pay-for-delay deal between AstraZeneca and three big generic manufacturers helped protect Nexium from competition between 2008 and May of this year. This is a very unfortunate situation, but given the power of the pharmaceutical companies to hire lobbyists, I don't know what we're going to do about it. We're out of time. I've been listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to Tyler Blythe and the good people at the Root of Happiness Kava Bar, as well as our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We will see you next week at the same time. And two weeks from now, we expect to bring you Jay Barbary talk about landing on the moon and Neil Armstrong. You're not going to want to miss that. Thank you.